Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions. In this episode, Ian Montgomery of Label Sessions talked to Faisal Siddiqui. Faisal is a global marketing specialist, formerly of the corporate realm and profit before founding his own business in the creative business company, working with clients like Shell, Formula E, Samsung, and more. Faisal's mission is to make brand marketing more accountable and effective for all. Ian talks to him to find out more. Um, we'll get this going by bit talking about what makes you famous. What are you known for, Mr. Siddiqui? Uh, I'm known for a lot of screw-ups. I'm known for um, perhaps saying the wrong thing in, in very high-end business meetings and maybe winning the account or losing the account. But I suppose what I'm mostly famous for now is uh, making brand more accountable and effective. As well. Primarily helping marketers make the business case for brand, for brand marketing, uh, shifting away the conversation from talking about emotions and purpose and just things that people outside of marketing can't really grasp their heads around and making a bit more of a cogent business case to CFOs, to CEOs. Um, I'm a brand strategist by trade, so we obviously do brand strategy as well, and and we also go into brand marketing. But I suppose what we've become most mostly famous for now is being able to make a very cogent business case uh, to the most skeptical people to get the biz to get the budget to to invest in brand. The brand's a massive five letter word, where like if you talk to a hundred people and ask them what a brand was, you'd probably get a hundred different answers. What what's a brand to you? A brand to me is the most underutilized financial asset of any company. And like, why is it underutilized? It's underutilized for the reason you just said, which is it is there's many different. Um, there's no common understanding of what it is. There's no way to measure it. Um, and often there is there's a lack of consensus on what to do to protect it and strengthen it, strengthen it. And so when you combine all three of those factors, a lack of common, commonality in terms of how people understand it, how to measure it, how to figure out whether it's working or not, and no standard ways of working with it, or there's no real uh, clear understanding of what does it mean to, to strengthen a brand? What does it mean to have a brand governance program? What does it mean to invest in a brand? I think you have what we, we have, you have the situation that we are in now, which is, um, Many, many B2B, even B2C companies have this huge, huge um, asset sitting on their balance sheet, which they're not managing to extract the value out of. How do, how do people like measure the value of it? So I think that's really interesting. Like People measure things to death these days, but there's a lot of a brand that's just sort of intangible. How do you yeah. go about that with companies? I think there's two ways. The first one is the traditional brand valuation. So this is the kind of interbrand, Millward Brown, so on and so forth, the brand finance brand valuation. And in essence, what they're trying to do is measure the difference between the physical assets of a company and the um, and what it's being traded at on the market. So that intangible value. That type of brand valuation, I find, is less uh, applicable for our clients. Um, it's very, very useful for clients like Shell, for example, or any company that runs a brand licensing program, or say if they license out their brand to a franchisee, then you need to figure out, okay, what does the franchisee pay us 
to use the brand. So brand valuations are very good um, uh, in serving that purposes. Um, for the types of clients that we work for, which are which tend not to have big brand licensing pro programs, but they tend to be more financial services companies and technology companies, the way we measure brand needs to be far closer to the cash flow. And so the way we do it, we link it to performance on the purchase funnel. So say, for example, um, a company has to bring or attract web traffic to its website, and then it has to get that traffic to go to a product page and then either to a sign-up page or to a checkout. For each one of those stages in the purchase journey, we measure the efficacy of brand in terms of its ability to attract that traffic to the website in a far cheaper way than, say, a two-for-one sales ad. And then also, how does it convert? How, you know, are the words that you are using, which are which, which come from brand positioning, are they persuasive enough to get people to to act? Um, so your background was working with the likes of like big brands like to Shell, while at Profit in the UK. So you're Canadian. You went to the UK. You came back to Canada, and then started the creative business company. Talk through a little bit about how that how your journey through your career with brand has led you to what you're doing now. It was all by accident. Um, I think the, I th I think it was a series of conversations I had around myself, around with myself, around where the opportunity lay in the market. So Profit is a wonderful organization in the sense that it's a management consultancy. So uh, it was started by Scott Galloway and David Aker, and it's structured like a management consultancy. So it attracts more MBAs. There's no account directors, um, and you do work like a management consultancy. And so typically. While it would work within the marketing sphere and with marketing clients, and work with very senior ones, so we're working with CMOs, we're with CEOs. Um, it's far more of a business-driven approach to to brand building and marketing, and so that was a wonderful education because it allowed me to give me the opportunity to see what what does brand building at blue chip companies at the C level look like. Where I saw an opportunity, though, and I'm sure your uh, this may uh, parallel with some of your experience at uh, Deloitte and Market Gravity, um, is that management consultancies are very good at the deck. And then what happens after the deck is a bit of a, is a bit of a kind of pervert. It's kind of a really, it's a gray zone. It's a, it's a bit of a gray zone. And while a lot of management consultancies would like to go into activation, the pricing models are such that it doesn't allow them to go there. That's the first reason. The second reason, and this is certainly not a day at profit, uh, a lot of my best friends are there. I met my wife there. Uh, but one of the challenges with management consultancies, and you'll know this, is that the reason they make su such healthy margins is that um, fundamentally they're selling a product. So there's a single process by which we attack problems. Um, and that single process is there's a deck, there's a way to formulate an argument. Um, and that's how you actually get 19, 20, 21 year olds. Um, able to confidently, without any um, without any uh, crisis of confidence, stand up in front of a VP with 40 years experience and tell them what to do. Why are they so confident in doing so? Because they're fundamentally following the process. So the process is great. Um, it, it gets you really healthy margins. There's a bunch of like MBA students and there's one partner. The challenge with the process is that it it, it struggles to acknowledge the originality of a client problem. And when you can't 
acknowledge what is unique about a situation, inevitably you're, you're going to struggle to come up with a solution that is unique. And so if you think about those two things, which is, um, I, I for one thought that a lot of the big opportunities within brand um, is less around comms these days. It's more around how does brand filter into an organization and affect its policies, its behaviors, its ways of thinking, its business models even. So that's the first thing. And then the second of all is, is, is how do you then bridge that gap between you know, a big idea or a strategy and then, and then activating that inside a company? So if you take those two things, I need to start my own firm. And so... Um, I was thinking about doing it in New York. Well, one, I didn't want to do it in London just because I think there was far too many kind of Soho uh, small little shops. I was thinking about New York, but then Trump just got elected. and I, uh, My first name is Mohammed Faisal Siddiqui. I wasn't going to go there. And so, um, and my wife was Canadian. So we decided to come to Toronto and I started up Creative Business Company in 2019. And our remit and scope is we help challenger brands. And we use that uh, term in quotations just because... Uh, the way we think about it is anyone who's not the incumbent is a challenger. They have to do something a bit different. We help challenger brands scale profitably by unlocking the power of brand marketing. And we're the guys who who actually work with mostly performance marketers. People are really skeptical about brand. And we're the guys who help them make the business case for it. We're the guys who help them reposition their companies in a way that is very much tied to certain sets of KPIs um, that they are more familiar with. Sorry, that was a long answer no it's a great answer and it's interesting the timing of it of i would argue that the tide is shifting a little bit on performance marketing it's becoming harder it's becoming more expensive it's becoming more congested so showing the value of it is becoming um not as easy as it once was and therefore there's a trend swaying back towards the power of brand when it comes to um when it comes to how you build your business and how you grow exactly I don't want to talk about the Barbie movie, but like that's the sort of the cliched example everyone talks about now of like this is the return of brand and this is how marketing is going back to its roots. I suppose so. I think there's a lot of. Um, I was actually reading a Fast Company article about that. I think the the big learning for me, I think a lot of the conversation around Barbie is focused on a activation and b culture. I think that's wrong. I think the bigger story is how they think about their portfolio at Mattel. So they have Hot Wheels, they have Mattel, they have Uno, they have a whole bunch of games. And they really think strategically around what is the roles and relationships between each one of these product brands, who are they for, and what is the playbook by which we grow them? So I think that for me was the, the most fascinating thing. And, and the CEO of Mattel just became the CEO of Gap. So I think you know Gap's hiring them not just for his cultural cachet that, that he brings, they're hiring him to take a more strategic look at the Gap brand and to add a bit more discipline and process around that. I don't think there's a brand out there that's gone through quite the, the fall but still hasn't died like Gap. I think Gap's always kind of just in a coma, ready to be kind of resuscitated by the new kind of CMO. Um, but I, I agree, it, 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 it's kind of like a cockroach. It'll never die. The question is, will it thrive? And um, I think if anyone can, can revive and, and take on that task, it's him. We'll always want lower mid-market teams. <laughs> um, so you've, done, you've worked on loads of really interesting projects and brands and such, but um, maybe like Formula E is a really good one to talk about. I don't know if you just want to talk to her a little bit like 
what's your experience like working with such a brand tell us a bit about the backstory about it and like how the brand makes that asset or that that organization stand out differently against a relatively crowded motorsports kind of space so there's two big headline takeaways from the formula e work that we did the first one is it shows how brand doesn't just drive comps but brand brand excuse me drives business decisions so that's the first thing the second big takeaway from our work with Formula E was we kind of busted through the myth that um, just because something is electric, it needs to be positioned around green themes. And, um, and, 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 and we kind of shone a light on a bit of the malpractices in terms of a lot of the surveys you have going out saying Gen Z will somehow pay a premium for a brand that has a purpose that aligns with their values, which is, which is, we can go down a bit of a rabbit hole with that around stated versus derived um, market research studies, but long story short, that that is not the case. That is that is absolutely not the case. So, um, formerly E was started in 2011 by this a bit of a Spanish playboy. His name was Alejandro Alcarag. He was a center right MP who then married the president's daughter. So it's just a wonderful move, and. Um, he then went on to own a Formula One team with the, um, the the very flamboyant Italian owner of that British team. I, f- I forget what it was called. Um, oh, I know he mean. Yes, yes, yes. Not Berlusconi. Yeah. So, so he he moved in those in those kind of spaces. The one percent who own Formula One teams, and then he actually owned QPR, and there was a Fabio Briatore. Fabio. Yes. And then that same group of, of, of I'm sure, wonderful people then bought, <laughs> then bought great Q- parties, great parties. <laughs> then they bought QPR and they actually had, there was a, I think there was a documentary, it was a Netflix or, or Amazon documentary. This was before the, um, the now or nothing ones. Um, it was their plan on bringing them up to the, the Premier League. Anyways, so he moved in those kind of F1 football type circles. And his newest plan was we are going to, we're going to do, create this thing called Formula E, which is the electric version of Formula One. And for him and his friends, that they absolutely salivated at the prospect of this, not because they were cleaning up the environment, even though that was the message that they were saying, is that if you know anything about Formula One, it really is all about sponsorship, right? So you're getting one person to pay the, to, 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 to pay the other person's bill. So... What can you do with Formula E? Well, you can go to um, lots of uh, great and wonderful countries, uh, often democratically elected, and they can host races and they can pay you a lot of money to host your clean, environmentally clean race. And that does wonders for their human rights records and all of those things. Then you can get sponsorship money from big banks and other companies who have CSR policies who want to wash away other types of scandals. And then you can get them to sponsor uh, your race. So it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful type of, uh, I don't want to call it a racket, it was a wonderful business um, where you have sponsorship dollars, you have interested cities, the mayors would come in, Leonardo DiCaprio would come in. It was wonderful. Great thing. Uh, so that was all great. The only slight little niggle was no one was fucking watching. So why was details? Yeah, it was small little details. No one was watching. Why is no one watching? Why? Because the cars are ugly. They're slow. They don't make any noise. And then get this, their batteries don't even last the whole race. So you, they have to switch it halfway through. And there's inane things. They would come and park them, get out, jump out of one car and go into another. 
that's when we were called in. In fact, they were on the brink of bankruptcy. They were a few races away from bankruptcy. And um, so what did we do? We started with a quant study. And um, that already sounds so nerdy even saying that. But look, story short, we, we did our typical. So they hired us to do a brand strategy of visual identity and customer experience project. And so at, at, in the, 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 the starting point for all of the strategy was basically Formula E was seen as a Diet Coke version of Formula One, which is very obvious, right? As I said before, the cars are slower. They don't make any noise. And if you think about all of the, what we call drivers of purchase, so why do people watch motorsports? Because it's exciting. Um, it's thrilling. It, it shows the la latest technological advances. Formula E didn't own any of those attributes. Formula One did. And so in typical uh, classic brand strategy, what you have here is a challenger paradigm where you have a challenger with low awareness. And so if you're not known, people don't trust you. Who doesn't? Who's going up against a huge incumbent, which is F1, who owns all of the things that you want to be famous for within a category. Now, in any challenger scenario like that, a stupid brand strategist would be like, oh, let's go head to head with Formula One. But if you know your brand strategy, you know, if you know what Red Bull did, Red Bull purposely did not go up against Coca-Cola. They purposely wanted to create space between themselves and the soda category, which is exactly why you'll never see Red Bull in the soda aisle, which is exactly why the can is a different size, which is exactly why the price point is different. It's the same thing um, even with T-Mobile. So in a typical challenger strategy, you want to limit comparisons to uh, the incumbent. You don't go up against them. So how do we not go up against them? Well, let's create our own subcategory. So how can we create a subcategory where we can actually take some of our disadvantages and reframe them as strengths? And I'm saying this story in a very kind of linear way. It certainly did not happen like that. Um, but the, I suppose the big idea was that their greatest weaknesses, the fact that it didn't make any noise, the fact that it was slow, um, was actually its greatest strength. Why is that? Because it doesn't make any noise and because it doesn't go at 300 miles an hour, they can actually race in the hearts of every single capital around the world, whereas F1 cannot. So F1 obviously has exceptions around Monaco and Singapore, but traditionally, majority of F1 races all happen in the boonies somewhere. Why? Because they're low, they don't meet emissions requirements, and and that and 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 that is their limiting factor. So F1 traditionally will always be in the suburbs somewhere, which is precisely why they tend to attract a kind of older, whiter male demographic. So our idea was let's actually take some of their weaknesses and reframe it into a strength. So what these cars can do is fine, they don't have to go to 300 kilometers an hour. But if you're going 150 down the Thames, that's still incredibly fast. And so it's all about shifting the context and reframing the context where your strengths can actually shine for themselves. And at uh, Creative Business Company, we call it, where can you fight where you can come first? And so where we, where we thought they could fight where they could come first is creating this new subcategory, and we called it the City Street Racing Series. And so that was the big idea. From that, we created an entire visual identity, which was far more urban. It channeled some of the rhythm and, and, and pace and visuals of of urban life. It was far more hip. It was far younger. And then that single idea of that positioning idea of the city street racing series 
then actually affected policy changes. So they said, you know what, we're going to run with this. We're only going to race in city centers. They changed the design of the cars to prioritize, to reduce the drag. So it's less about top speed, it's more about maneuverability. They changed the rules. So if you go off the racing line, like in Mario Kart, you get an extra 30 horsepower. And then they also hacked the rules and said the racers with the most social likes before the race gets an extra boost of power as well. So they gamified it. So they've said, we're going, the idea is the City Street Racing Series. We're not a traditional motorsport. We're going after young people. They're not traditionalists. They're not purists. They'll be okay if we change some of the rules. They hacked the rules and they completely changed this sport based on that positioning. And when that position was launched in 2016, as I said before, they were in pretty dire financial straits in 2020 they had a recent valuation of 900 million just close to a billion dollars so that was really really it was kind of a once in a lifetime thing it's very lucky uh the project never went as linearly as i told it uh, there's a lot of um very scary moments where we said you know where's the answer going to come from but it was one of those lucky things it was a team effort and um it was a great example of a we're not going to position this sport based on being good to the environment. If the product sucks, no one cares whether it's good for the environment. They're not going to watch. And two, uh, it was a great example of how a brand strategy then affected and made, made business changes. It informed policy, informed the product, and informed the experience. So it was super fun. It's a great story, and I appreciate like to make it easier to tell. You have to like go with the what's the linear version of it versus the the lumpy reality. When it comes to um, what you go through day to day with clients now, is there a, like an approach that you find following the same thing each time? Do you find there's things that you commonly do differently to, between clients? Like, what's your what's the thing that you end up finding yourself going back to again and again, effectively, when it comes to to brand and helping companies put brand at the heart of what they do? So we do four basic things. One, we do we position brands visually and verbally. Two, we have a planning service which helps uh, companies make the business case for brand, put the numbers behind uh, brand. Three, we do promotion, so that's digital first brand marketing. And the fourth one is we work on portfolios. So how can companies structure their portfolios so it's easier for customers to buy? So what is the commonality through all of that? I think the commonality through all of that is we are helping either brand teams or marketing teams build their confidence internally in terms of articulating the benefit of brand. One of the things that I've, I've seen over the last at least decade or so is that brand marketers have gotten incredibly shy and they've lost their confidence. And when, they, when brand marketers lose their confidence, it's such a sad thing to see because they'll do one of kind of three or four things, which usually involve crouching and, and hiding. And how do they crouch and hide? They crouch and hide doing things that no one else in the company will challenge them on or care about. So they'll either go off into purpose land, they'll either go off into um, purpose land, they'll go off into being logo police, right? Or they'll go off and uh, I had a third one I can't remember, but I'm sure I I'm sure everyone else can fill it out. And so what happens is, I think the really sad thing is that I think brand teams are scared of being challenged in the business, right? You'll have someone, a snarky comment from a CFO. You'll have a snarky comment from someone in the product team about, oh, that was a waste of money or why are we doing that? And they don't have the language and they don't have the arguments to push back. 
And so for me, the the thing that I, I really, really enjoy is helping clients develop those arguments on around how to push back and how to push back forcefully. And the funny thing is when you have those comments from the CFO, you have those comments from a product, they're all kind of paper tiger comments because the minute you actually come back forcefully, they die down. And so that's, I think that's a common thing that we're doing. And the, and, and the, the way that we're doing that fundamentally is, 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 as I said before, at the top of the hour is we're not talking about investments in brand as, 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 as ways of creating more emotional bonds between customers and their companies. No, shut up. Stop saying that. In, in fact, we tell them, stop it. Go, go, go in the corner. The way we think about investments in brand is, is building future demand versus converting existing demand. And, and, and I think when you equip people with the language to talk about brand like that as a deposit of future cash flows for this company, um, you get, you know, people stand up and, and, and take notice. And I think, I think the more we can move brand teams away from being government governance, excuse me, and logo police, worse yet purpose to stop it. Uh, the more we can get brand teams to be integral revenue drivers to companies, the more we can return this glorious profession back to, back to the place it should be. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. You talk about confidence though, so I find that really interesting because I look at it and it's not just a brand team. I look at wider, broader marketing teams, innovation teams, even like CFOs look at like, you just, they lack this sort of, they go into that shell, any sort of form of criticism or critique turns into fear turns into like stress worry and then their behaviors become the wrong behaviors for growing the business for what comes next like i find that i find the whole confidence thing fascinating and then how do you flip that into forget it shut up go in the corner like take a time out and come back and let's think about where we're going next and it's a when you lose con when teams lose confidence it's actually a death spiral because it, you nailed you nailed the point perfectly which is when when they lose confidence, they go back to doing very, very narrow things that the rest of the company doesn't care about because that, and they do that because it shields them from criticism, but it makes them less and less relevant. And the minute there's a, there's a whiff of a recession, their budget gets cut. And so this, if they're walking the gangplank really towards extinction. And I think the, um, a lack of confidence can, is, so, is very easy to be solved. It's solved with knowledge, simple as that, right? When we when we feel lacking confidence or we're lacking hope, it's because there's a there's a there's a sub there's because we don't know what to do, we don't know what the answer is. But those answers exist. Those answers exist. Those arguments exist. And the minute we equip clients with those, and we often learn a lot from our clients as well. The minute our profession develops the lingua franca to 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 advocate for itself. Um, not just amongst ourselves, but within other cohorts inside the business, I think, as I said before, it can be a wonderful thing. But confidence, a lack of confidence is solved with knowledge, and you don't have to take a year out to do an MBA. <laughs> you could talk to Ian. <laughs> How do you stay confident? How do you, like, we've asked a lot of people who run their own businesses this. How do you stay resilient and confident in what you do? It's a farce. No. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, to be honest, I think... I'll be very, I'll be very transparent. I think the way 
business owners show up on podcasts is one thing and how we are on our own is very different. So being a business owner emotionally is a, is a total, um, is a total roller coaster. There's ups, there's downs, there's this and that, but I am very conscious of, even if I'm not feeling confident in front of my employees in, in terms of people I'm marketing to, I do have to come across as confident. Because the problem is because if you lack confidence and that affects your delivery, the worst thing that can happen is you can actually have people who are incredibly skilled at their profession. But because they are not articulating in a forceful way, people will assume that they don't know what they're talking. And so I think for me, um, the, the honest truth is I found I found going into business on my own the hardest thing was was the ability to stay confident because you don't have a, the fat paycheck from the large company coming all the time, and so it's very hard to stay confident. But I think I think I don't have a solve for that. I'm not a self help guru. What I can say though is you best at least fake it and look confident because that is the best way to actually uh, to, to apply the skills that you have. It means that you might not be confident in that moment, but it will help you get your mojo back faster than like letting it slide. Exactly. You, like it's a there's a momentum thing. The momentum can push you upwards, but it can also push you down. Hundred percent, absolutely. Like in terms of like where you go next from here, like what what happens to where, where, where do you see this business going? What what's your what's your goals and aspirations for it? Where do you see what's creative business company going to be in a few years time? When I started the firm, I always. The analogy that I had was I wanted a I wanted a hybrid between an Ogilvy and a McKinsey, and uh, the problem was with that analogy is that depending on who you say that to, they only understand one part of that equation, <laughs> which <laughs> which I think is a, the challenge with our industry. But I I I think I think there is I think there's a huge opportunity for the conversation around brand to be decoupled from media. And from communications and when it does get decoupled from communications and media it will it has a more objective footing and i think the challenge with a lot of ad agencies is behind all of their advice is this slight perception that they just want a percentage of the billings on the media budget and I think when you decouple brand from just communication, when you think about it in terms of policies that inform how a business acts, if you think about it as the lens through which businesses make decisions about customer experience, great example of that. If you take the W Hotel versus, say, the Western Hotel, the Western Hotel, their brand is all about the greatest night's sleep ever. Where do you think they put their CapEx? Into the mattress, into the room. The W, what is their brand about? Well, it's gone through a bit of rough and tumble, but it's more about the social experience. Where do they put their CapEx? They put in the lobby. So when we think about brand as almost as a filter for decision-making internally, for the customer experience, for where we invest our money, I think it becomes a far more powerful thing. And going back to what we said before, that is how companies unlock the value of this incredibly underutilized financial asset. And the wonderful thing about brand, we're doing um, we're doing a lot of work. We're lucky enough to do a lot of work with Morningstar. So Morningstar is one of the world's largest financial institutions with for financial ratings, and we work with the central brand team there. So it's a mix between a FS company and a technology company. And the wonderful thing about uh, working with the brand team there, which is led by Saul Sender, an incredibly 
intelligent and intellectual client. He was uh, actually the brand strategist who developed the Obama logo. And one of the wonderful things about working for brand there is in a lot of these organizations, you know this, they're all product-driven organizations that are incredibly siloed. And in effect, the company as a whole is never greater than the sum of its parts. And so the brilliant thing about a central brand team is that because they are central, because they can see all, you know, the 30,000 foot view, they can be the ones who can say, how do we take a more outside-in, customer-centric view for organizing this portfolio? Maybe instead of putting 200 products on the website, we should actually distill it down into four or five family brands, for example. And so for me, the, the, the role of brand moving forward, I think it, it, it points to that type of future where it is far more um, embedded in into the into the into all the different customer facing elements of a business um, and it's less about comms and it lasts longer right it's, it means like the things that you do stay around and so you're no longer just as good as your last campaign or communication in this effort yeah everything you do lives on through the whole experience of a customer interacting with you and it materially impacts people's day-to-day -day business so imagine going from a brand team that was more like a logo police right and then literally they are the ones within one year to reshape the entire organization from thousands of products into four family brands. That and breaks down silos in doing so and helps clients finally for the first time understand the totality of a company and help cross-sell and upsell. That's a huge jump. It's massive. And so that's really what excites me today. And um, yeah. Nice. It's career changing as well. I think like so. the, for the client, that's like takes you from being like a cog to an integral part across the across the organization. Absolutely, I think one of the one of the heads of brands that I learned from the most was actually his name is Rahul Malhotra. He's the head of brand strategy at Shell, and the discipline that Shell forget what you think about the company, but the discipline that Shell has around its investments in brand and its brand governance beats most B two C companies, frankly. And why is that? Well, every single Shell station is owned by a local operator, um, but they license the brand from something called Shell Inc., which sits, sits, which is a holding company in Switzerland. And so that holding company in Switzerland uh, invests in brand valuation through brand finance, and they monetize the brand. So the brand at Shell is a revenue driver because it has a number associated with it because different gas stations around the world are paying for that. And if you look at a Shell gas station compared to an Esso or anything like that, I guarantee you it is the cleanest, it is the most well put together, and that is 100% driven by the brand team. I think the only other brand that can compare to them in, in that sort of end customer experience, and it's not a very sexy or attractive one, and it'll create some ire with Canadians, is Irving. They're like the big oil company based out east. They're like basically most of the Brunswick GDP, they own all the forestry and the uh, they own gas stations or refineries, but they they make such a big play on their gas stations of they'll be the cleanest gas stations, they'll be the best value, they have like great restaurants in them. But it makes a genuine difference because then people will stop at those gas stations again and again versus be like, oh, I can make it another 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers to the ESA. I'd rather go to the Irving or I'd rather go to the Shell. 100%. I've seen internal intranets at Shell where yeah. there's contests for who has the cleanest bathroom in, in gas stations around the world. And we're talking about 20,000 gas stations. I don't want to see photos of the, of the bugs at the shell. <laughs> but going back to what you're saying, like, where do I also see the 
opportunity. I think a lot of the opportunity is going to come in B2B. Why is that? Just because there's a greater burden of proof that is required on any investments in marketing and brand. So brand teams in, in B2B organizations have it harder. And because they have it harder, they will, they will have to become more performance driven and more accountable quicker than say a brand team at a fashion house. And, and I think for me as a brand strategist who is, who is really interested in making brand more accountable, I, m my mission personally is I want to be the guy who changes brand from this fluffy thing by uh, kind of random people in the corner of the company to this integral thing. And uh, I think that is going to really going to happen first and foremost at B2B organizations. We've had that conversation lately with like B2B sales. So how do you actually sell in a B2B manner in a better way? A lot of people are following that quite a, 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 a tried and tested but tiring playbook of B2B sales. But they have like a sales team that know how to sell, but they have a brand team that hasn't necessarily supported and helped that sales team. And like the power of them together creates a much better experience, both for them as an organization, but for them, the people that they're selling to, and then for the end user of whoever the product's for. I think there's something way more important around that, but like that's a, that's a whole other conversation we can go into. 120%. So at, at Morningstar, I think the, the sales team, um, one, they already understood the value of the Morningstar brand just because of the work the client did. But I think what really nailed home the point for them was um, it's the famous 95-5 rule from Aaron Berg Bass, which is 95% um, of a firm's revenue will come from clients who are not actively shopping the category right now. So if they're not actively shopping the category, they don't have a need and they don't want to hear from you. Only 5% are. So sales teams, by by definition, are going after the warm leads who are fishing for an offer right now. And the greatest thing that we can say to a sales team is, listen, by us building the Morningstar brand or whomever the Shell brand or what have you, when one of those 95 enter the category, they'll already know your name. And instead of going after, instead of serving what we call a hot lead or a hot offer, excuse me, to a cold lead, you're going to do a hot offer to a warm lead. And that is the power of building the brand before the sales conversation actually happens. I love that. Um, I want to move into the the more quick fire questions, which I think you're sort of slightly dreading. Yeah. Um, I'll, ask, I'll ask you a few, but... Uh... Where do you go to feed your brain? Books, primarily books, um, books, and then odd places of the internet. Uh, <laughs> plug, plug a book in an odd place of the internet. Come on. Yeah. So, um, while I'm rereading this classic, it's actually sitting underneath the computer, but this is called Brand Portfolio Strategy by David Aker. Wonderful book, actually, on the application of brand towards portfolio strategies. <clears throat> Um, but the, so that's kind of a nerdy in category example where I'm, where my mind has been lately, and this is going to be very, very random, but after, during, um, the Roman empire, after a lot of their, um, military expeditions, there was always this question of what do we do with the returning soldiers, right? They're hyped up. They probably massacred a whole bunch of barbarians, <laughs> And, and and are we going to reintegrate them into Rome? And the reason I say that is that for some reason, uh, based due to the algorithm of YouTube, I've now become somewhat familiar with this whole kind of subgenre of YouTube uh, channels where there are all these ex um, 
uh, military folks who are essentially taking all of their wherewithal and 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 knowledge and selling it domestically to uh, police departments, fire departments, or the average American who needs an AK-47. And for me, that one of the things that's in incredibly worrying about that is that you have an increasing militarization of society, coupled with a greater polarization uh, politically as well. And so for me, from a sociological perspective, that doesn't sound like a recipe for success. And that whole Roman thing, I, I was trying to find parallels to this. What did, what, did, what did the Roman Empire do? They probably gave them some farmland or something or something to cool their heads. But for me, one of the worrying things right now is, is the slight militarization of science. I'm based in Canada, so we're kind of very lucky to be shielded from that, even though we have a very... Unless you're in auto and truckers. Yeah, but I think, um, <laughs> sorry, this was a total tangent, but yeah, things like that. That's why we ask these questions. Um, are, are top of mind for me this week. Love it. We'll come back to you next week for what's next. In terms of like what's overhyped right now, what are you sort of tired of? I want to say AI. I what 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 am I overhyped about? Anything that's overhyped. What's underhyped? What's underhyped? Brand is underhyped. I think um, brand is underhyped. What I'm overhyped about? Oh, I'll tell you what I'm overhyped. I'm overhyped about lack of scrutiny on so many of these DTC brands. Um that were built by many of these tech bros who could tell a good story to VC, who, ha who had billions of dollars in investment but could never turn a profit. So Warby Parker hasn't turned a profit. Albers hasn't turned a profit. Casper, um, famous DTC, is now selling in Sleep Country Canada. Uh, ClearBank in Canada, the supposed uh, financial services innovative solutions, they're on the brink of bankruptcy. So I think one of the... Uh, challenges I have with the tech sector is that it doesn't seem to be um, overly interested in reflection on what have they done right and what have they done wrong. And often the same mistakes happen again and again. And I've seen, and especially in the DTC um, land and space, I've seen very few businesses that are that are fundamentally profitable and are, are financially sound. So I'm slightly overhyped when those same people go on to the next new thing and, 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 um, without a degree of accountability as well that's some good stuff about that and, and uh it's becoming more of a, a more of a commentary versus look at this sexy new brand what's the brand that you'd love to love to work with is there a brand out there doing something really interesting and it makes you go either really admire them or really well work with well to be honest i tend to like to work with brands that are not quite there yet so my <laughs> my answer will be um because if they're really good they don't need me which is a good thing so i think um one brand that was very much on my radar, but I don't think it's going to work out because they're trying to sell themselves, is Laurentian Bank. So Laurentian Bank in Canada was a number seven player. Um, there was a new CEO. Her name was uh, Rania Llewellyn, absolutely brilliant woman. Uh, she came, she was like a VP or EVP from Scotiabank, moved over. Uh, for the international audiences, what you need to know is Can the Canadian banking sector is essentially an oligopoly. And... Um, Good thing about that, I suppose, is that we, uh, because it is like that, the, uh, we we were spared the worst from the from the um, from the banking crisis in two thousand nine. But at the same time, uh, there's not a tremendous amount of choice. So there's four or five main banks, and so what she did, she went from one of the bigger banks went, and went down to the number seven bank, which is called Laurentian, which came out of Quebec. They're doing some really interesting stuff. I'd love to work with them, just because it's an opportunity to perhaps shake up. Um, uh, a very 
a very staid sector. So really any any brand that is going up and up against an incumbent and are willing to throw out the playbook, that's who I want to work with. And my last question, the one that you really didn't want me to ask, but I'm going to ask it because we ask everybody. How weird are you? I, I think the, such, I hate that question. <laughs> I hate that question because it's such a, it's such a human interest question. I think everyone's weird in their own ways. Um, and uh, I suppose, I, I don't know if I'm more or less because that's a relative thing. And I don't, I don't know what performance everyone else is on their weird score. So I suppose somewhat weird. And I think the more weirder you are, the better. Spoken like a true politician. I can't wait for you to run for office. Yeah. <laughs> on that, on that note, thanks for, thanks for joining us and talking through this. I, I always struggle to keep these things short. I could have talked to you all day. Yeah. Awesome speaking to you, man. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.